the Lord impressed upon me uh, this morning to just read a couple of scriptures. And I'm reading them from the New Living Translation, but I, I just want to take a moment to do this. Psalm 57, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. I look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. Aren't you thankful for the word of God? Aren't you thankful for the Lord? No better place to be than under his wings. Amen. And then a few weeks ago, uh, I had the privilege of ministering at a relationship conference in California, and I had the privilege of sharing that conference with my sister who spoke, spoke one of the sessions, and she mentioned the idea that, you know, we're all acquainted with 911. We call 911 for emergencies, and, you know, we're in trouble. And she said, I want to give to you this morning the idea that we have a 911 we can go to. And so Psalm 91, verse 1 says, Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God and I trust Him. For He will rescue you from every trap and protect you from every deadly disease. Aren't you thankful for the Lord, His goodness, His mercies? Amen. He is good. Let's, let's give the Lord a good hand of praise this morning. Amen. <laughs> There's a lot to be said that we are children of God. I, I mean, that's, that in itself, I've always said, 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. That's powerful. Amen. Enough said about that. But anyway, uh, Pastor, thank you, Pastor, asked me to uh, wrap up the series on parables. So, of course, right away, I started thinking, okay, uh, First of all, I needed to find out what parables he had already covered because in our travels we weren't able to be here uh, in the, the series, uh, all the sermons he preached. We were here, I know, for at least one, and uh, so I wanted to make sure I wasn't double-tracking uh, a parable he had already spoken. So uh, that morning, uh, that Sunday morning before I left, I chose this parable because my son Matthew, who is not here today, he's in another church uh, presenting his ministry, but he said, now, Dad, we've heard a lot of these parables, and, you know, we've heard, like, the Good Samaritan, we know all about that. Uh, you need to pick a parable that, you know, we've had questions with. And he named one. And he referred to the one I'm going to speak about this morning in Luke 16, the unjust steward. He said, check that one out, Dad. He goes, I've had questions about that for a long time. Fix something a little, you know, raises questions. 
I said, well, thanks, Matt. Well, you know, I kind of blew it off, Pastor. And little did I know, God forbid, that the Lord spoke through my son and <laughs> planted a seed. So I went to Luke 16, and it got a hold of me. So that's where we're at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 16. And we're going to be ministering uh, in Luke 16. I've called the unjust steward. Or I have an alternative. I don't know if they use that. The unjust steward, or you could title it, the unmindful manager who mismanaged his master's money. I kind of like that one. <laughs> the unmindful manager who mismanaged his master's money. Uh, no parable of Jesus has caused so many varying interpretations as this one. For it seems, as we move through the text, it seems that Jesus, on the surface, is commending a dishonest deed by a shrewd steward as an example for his disciples to imitate. Also, he seems to commend the worldly wise over the wisdom of the godly. Now, there are two parables in this chapter that deals with wealth. The first one, Jesus was speaking primarily to his disciples. The second parable, which follows this one, was addressed to the Pharisees because of their reaction to the first parable. But we're going to deal with the first parable this morning. How many knows that the Bible has a lot to say about money and possessions? In fact, it's been said there are approximately 500 verses that deal with prayer and approximately 2,000 verses that deal with money and possessions, material wealth. In fact, one half of Jesus' parables deal with money and possessions. So Jesus shares this parable with his disciples to stress to them that they must use their wealth wisely and also for the purpose of advancing the kingdom. So here in this text, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, we see that uh, verses 1 through the first part of verse 8, Jesus gives us the story. In the second part of verse 8 through verse 13, Jesus will then apply this story as he always does. Pastor mentioned a couple of weeks ago, very important, a parable is made up of two words in the Greek. It's made up of a preposition and a verb. And it kind of sounds like parable in the Greek, parabolas. Para is a preposition which means to come alongside of. Balo is the verb to throw or cast. What is Jesus doing when he's giving parables? He is throwing alongside or casting alongside an illustration, alongside a truth that he wants to apply. So with every parable, sometimes not always to the whole audience, 
but he would apply or share the meaning of that parable many times, call his disciples aside and share with them the meaning. So here Jesus speaks of two kinds of treasures. He speaks of earthly and heavenly. He speaks of two masters, God and mammon. And he speaks of two different preoccupations. The preoccupation of the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God. Worldly ambition and materialism, the wooing of wealth or money, can hold a powerful sway over people's lives. How many know that? One songwriter, I think it was Wayne Watson, over 30 years ago, had a song entitled Material Magic. At the end of the parable, Jesus insists we must make a choice between the two. Between mammon or God, there can be no fence straddling. So let's look at this. Let's get into it. We have, first of all, the account of the unmindful manager. And in verses 1 and 2, we have the accusation that was brought against him. Are you with me? Say amen. Ready? Chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Now, some say he was fired right here. I believe, really, he's giving him another chance. He's asking him to make a full account of what happened, or he's going to be fired. And so, here, note, first of all, Jesus is addressing this parable to his disciples. The master found out that his steward was not handling his money wisely. In that day, in the first century... In Jesus' day, managers were often hired by wealthy people to manage their money. It's kind of like they were a, a CFO. They were an investor. They were a financial planner. One who controlled their master's money for the purpose of making more money. That was the whole point. So apparently this manager was unmindful in the handling of his manager's money and he had wasted much of it, we don't know, maybe through poor investments or whatever. It wasn't so much that he was dishonest, he was irresponsible. So like the parable before, in Luke chapter 15, you recall the story of the prodigal son who received his father's inheritance and then he went out and wasted all the money and ended up in the hog pen. So it's kind of like that in the sense that this steward, this manager, blew it. Didn't handle the money well. So in a sense... The master questioned him as if saying, how could you have done this to me? How could you have been so irresponsible? Now, look at verse 3, 7, verses 3 through 7, because here we see the response of the steward, the analysis made by him. Immediately, his brain starts to work. Isn't it wonderful that God gives us a brain? I'll talk about that a little more later. But verse 3, 
Listen to this, what the steward is, says to himself. The steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. Well, I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I, re, I have resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures and of oil. So he said, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write 80. So immediately, this steward, with the threat of losing his job and his livelihood, the wheels start clicking. And I find it interesting, this unjust steward morphs into a shrewd steward. And he decides not only to make his master look good, but to cover his own posterior as well. He decided he only had two choices. Either go out and beg or go into hard labor. Well, neither of those appealed to him. So what does he do? He goes to his master's debtors and calls in their debts by reducing the amounts that they owed. Okay? So one owed 800 gallons of olive oil. So he said, okay, turn in 400 gallons. One owed 1,000 bushels of wheat. So he says, you, he dropped that to 800 bushels of wheat. Now, interesting, I found where some scholars have suggested that in the Old Testament, the law forbade the Jews to charge interest to those who were in debt to them. And yet, in the first century, it was also discovered that many people, uh, the Jewish laws, crafted loopholes against the law of charging interest. Catch that? They crafted, how many knows there's loopholes today? If you look hard enough. So obviously it's possible uh, when the manager was confronted with the possibility of losing his job and livelihood, he actually acted in obedience to the Old Testament law, okay, and possibly what the, he has done here, he has lessened the amount by withdrawing the entrance, interest that was charged them. So that did two things. First of all, it endeared the debtors to the one they owed the money to. And not only that, it made his boss look good and the other thing, in the fact of covering his back, it also made them think if he did lose his job, these fellows would look favorable on this steward and possibly hire him. Now, I don't know about you, friend, but turn to your neighbor and smile. That guy was sharp. He was shrewd. He was smart. What was he doing? He was thinking ahead. So you might say in this one decision, what he decides to do, he kills two birds with one stone, makes his master look good, and covers his backside. Well, look at the last part of verse 8. 
the last part of verse 8. Uh, Sometimes I have to take my glasses off. You know, it's an old saying. Do you find yourself doing this? Okay. So here we go. You, anyway. The first part of verse 8. So the master commanded the unjust steward because he had dealt, commended, I should say, the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. Okay? Very important. Interesting. You have the acclamation of the master after his steward does this. Here the master finds out that the unjust, now shrewd manager, what he had done, and to say the least, he is um, impressed and he commends his manager for his ingenuity. Note, keep in mind, the unjust manager originally did not do a good thing. But now, what he has done, to say the least, he is impressed, commends him. He did an unjust thing because he wasted his manager's, his master's money. He wasted it. He wasn't responsible. So what he did was not good. And it's possible he could have been a little dishonest. But here he acts shrewdly. Why? He planned ahead to secure his own future as well as his master with his debtors. And no doubt his debtors were now grateful. So, now let's move to the application. Jesus makes a threefold application about this simple story. Okay? So, look at the last part of verse 8. The last part of verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Now, I've read this story again and again in reading through the Bible for many years. And there's always been some questions here exactly what is Jesus saying here? Because it looks like Jesus is commending those of the world, the worldly wise, over the children of the light. So what we have here, first of all, in the last part of verse 8, the worldly wise versus the spiritually slow. Certainly the master's response in this story was surprising, but even more astounding is the conclusion of Jesus to the disciples. So here Jesus begins to make application of this parable, and his opening statement seems a little confounding. In fact even stings a bit if you're a child of the light. If you're not a child of the light, it's not bothering you. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation, okay, than the sons of light. Ouch. Shrewd here means to be discreet, thoughtful, practical skill, sensible, prudent, another contemporary word that we could use here that says it, sharp. Okay? Sharp. Turn to your neighbor, smile at him and say, sharp. Now it is obvious Jesus was not teaching his disciples to be dishonest. But he flat out stated that the people of the world are resourceful 
and focused on the goals they have set before him. And what Jesus here is holding up for his disciples is that they are to emulate that kind of focus and wisdom. Listen, some people have the mistaken idea that uh, to live by faith means we check out mentally. I'm just living by faith. You have a safe escape. What are your, oh, I don't do that. God's going to take care of Besides, the rapture will take place. I don't need to worry. How many have been along around long enough you've heard that kind of thing? Right? No, living by faith. No. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your what? Mind. We live by faith doesn't mean we check the brain at the door and just fly by the seat of our britches. In a sense, Jesus is commending this steward because he used his mind, was shrewd, and planned for the future. So, love the... I used to tell my students that in orientation at Messenger College. I would use that verse because I, I would tell them, I said, now you're coming into college, you know, a whole room full of freshmen. I said, you're going to find out that college is far different than high school. You will read, you will read, you will read, you will write, you will write, you will write, you will study, you will study, you will study. You will need to use the brain. And I use that verse, love the Lord your God with all your mind. What does that mean to use, your, to love the Lord God with your mind? It means to be fully engaged with our mind. Be aware, be alert, not just spiritually, obviously. Peter talked about that. Be shrewd, be diligent, be vigilant. Why? Because your devil, your adversary, goes around seeking whom he may devour. So we know that means be alert, be awake. Glory. So that's what Jesus is saying here, is that we are to be sharp and wise. And the idea of being sharp and wise as Christians and followers of Jesus Christ, therefore the people of light should walk honestly, shrewdly, wisely, scrupulous with their money and their wealth. The implication here is that this. He said the world, the worldly wise, are focused. They know their goals and they move toward those goals how much greater are the goals of the children of light when you compare to the goals of the world? Seek ye therefore first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is that the unbeliever is running after the things and the materialism of this world. That will perish. Jesus said, seek my kingdom and my righteousness first. I'll take care of all these other things. Glory but that doesn't mean we check out all these other things, seeking the kingdom of God. Our wealth is far greater than anything we could ever accumulate in our bank accounts and you know IRAs here on this earth. Glory. Our treasure is far greater. It is eternal. So Jesus tells us to be alert. Now, verse 9. It gets even more confusing. 
I love verse 9, especially out of all this. Verse 9, it reads, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves. Keep in mind, he's speaking to the disciples. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves. How? By unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Well, verse 9, Jesus is talking about the disciples' use of money. Jesus made it clear that money should not be our master, but we should master our money. Now, it's also important that Jesus calls mammon, which is money, if you haven't figured that out by now. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the idea is that... uh, Jesus calls mammon worldly, or here he calls it unrighteous. Why does Jesus call money or mammon unrighteous? Four things, very simple. Number one, because it can tempt us in various ways. Two, it could tempt us to unrighteous or evil ways and ends. Three, money will not aid us when we stand before God. God doesn't care. Well, He does in one sense. But when it comes to His judgment, He will not look to our accounts and our investments, will He? The old proverbial saying, we've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. It stays here. Number four, Paul said this, The love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is what? The root of all evil. Now here Jesus is saying something interesting. He's saying that the disciples should use their money to make friends just like the shrewd steward. Now I ask you, certainly those debtors, what that manager did in reducing their debt, he made friends with those debtors. We don't know what eventually happened, whether the, manager, the master kept him on as his steward or maybe he went to work for one of those debtors. But the idea, he made friends with those guys, didn't he? Wouldn't you if one of the people you owe just cut your bill in half? Hey, you know, let's go to McDonald's, have something to eat, you know, just fellowship. Oh. See, the idea, he made friends with them. Now, what does this mean? Helping and giving to others. Not only befriends them, hear this, as children of light. We're talking about children of light interacting with children of darkness. Ignorance does not appeal to children of darkness. But here is the child of light investing into a need of a child of darkness, and that will befriend them. But even more than that, here's the key. It could possibly lead them into the kingdom. Did you get that? Not only befriend them, but possibly, eventually, ultimately, lead them into the kingdom. And that is the ultimate, is it not? 
In fact, to illustrate this, we won't go there, but briefly, you know the story of rich, the rich man and Lazarus. The very next parable, uh, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. We know that story that Lazarus was a poor beggar. And he was at the gates of the rich man. The rich man totally ignored the plight of Lazarus. Then when death came, Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham. The rich man was in hell. And we know the story that he looked and begged for water. And even asked if, you know... The Lord could send someone to his brother so they wouldn't come there. The key is this. Is it possible if Lazarus would have contributed and helped and come alongside Lazarus, if the rich man would have come alongside him, he would have been in the same place with Lazarus, in the right place rather than hell. Now that is an orientation of life. And this is a key point. An orientation of life as children of light. That whatever we are, whatever we do, whatever we have, the ultimate purpose is for eternal value and for the kingdom. To influence people into the kingdom of light. And that's the key, one of the keys that unlocks this parable that Jesus gives his disciples is to invest the idea of paying forward. And some of you have done that. I've heard stories. Uh, and I, I say that just an example. Uh, we were at uh, Jimmy's Egg. You ever, anybody ever been to Jimmy's Egg? You know, one of the best breakfasts in the four-state area. And uh, how many knows that fellowship in the kingdom involves food? Glory. And thankful food is important. I mean, Jesus, even after the resurrection, he's cooking breakfast for the disciples. Revelation 3.20 talks about Jesus knocking on the door. It says, if anybody hears my voice, lets me in, he'll come in and do what? Sit down and sup. Eat. Isn't it amazing? Jesus is always eating. I'm so thankful that Jesus in the Gospels is our example and not John the Baptist. And I say that because Jesus was always partying. Glory, eating. And he didn't care who it was with, as long as he got to eat. John the Baptist was a holy hermit. He lived on grasshoppers. Come on, I'll follow Jesus, you follow John the Baptist. Glory, I think you get the point. And we were there eating, and I noticed this elderly gentleman with a World War II cap on. And you could tell he was obviously a World War II vet. And he was sitting there at the table by himself. And Pam and I, at the same time, we felt that we motioned the waitress over and said, we want to pick up that gentleman's tab. Don't tell him. We'll take it. And we took it, paid for that World War II veteran's breakfast. Uh, Matthew tells a story when he was going there. I can tell on him since he's not here. And he was there going to a city where he was beginning ministry, and he was sitting there at McDonald's. The whole family come in, and they were getting ready to order. Uh, and the Lord impressed Matthew to pay for their bill. And Matthew just went forward and paid for their whole bill. I mean, a whole family. The key here, Jesus is saying, in the shrewdness... And the alertness of the children of light, 
be alert to kingdom values. Not just earthly values. And may I say what heaven values and what earth values are completely different, infinitely different. What the world values here is blacktop in heaven. What the world values here, the streets are paved with it there. That's the God we serve. That's where we're headed. So what we're doing is we are investing in an eternal account. Okay, verse 10. Application number two. Still with me? Say amen. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. So, application number two, stewardship of spiritual treasure. Faithful versus unjust, verse 10. Unjust here means sinful, dishonest, wicked, unrighteous, simply not right. Faithful means trustful, trustworthy, reliable, sure, true. It's also the word that's used for Christians. Christians are known as what? The faithful. So here the meaning is simply this. He who is trustworthy in the little things will be trustworthy in the big things and vice versa. One commentary said this. Money. Hear this. Money, indeed all possessions, are pictured simply as resources which we are entrusted by God. It's not my money It's not my home. It's not my property. It's God's money. It's God's home. It's God's property. He has simply entrusted it to me to be a manager and steward of what He has given me. Amen? Can I get a witness here? The attitude of a godly steward is simply this. God is the owner, we are managers. It's all His. So we're not to get so caught up with giving the 10%, which already belongs to Him, yes, and we should do that. That's that's the one physical act we can do as Christians that signifies we believe Him to be Lord of our life. God, at the top, we will give you the top 10%. It's yours anyway. That's why Malachi chapter 3 says, you quit paying your tithes, you are actually robbing God. The 10% isn't yours to begin with. But don't get so caught up with that. The proper godly steward knows God's just as concerned what I'm doing with the night percent and giving the 10 percent it's all his now what does that do it brings a freedom in our lives he calls the shots i just need to be alert with what he wants me to do with it if he wants you to pay somebody's bill fine If he impresses a pastor of a large church to completely pay off all the school lunch debt in the districts that surround their church, which amounted to thousands of dollars, he can do it. Why? It's not his. God calls for it and says, do this. Let me say simply, there are no white-knuckled Christians in the kingdom of God. Glory. 
So, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon who will commit to your trust the true riches. And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Again, it just keeps getting more interesting. Of course, we said mammon refers to money, wealth, property. But the idea of who will commit to you the other, commit there is the idea to entrust, to believe in, to have confidence in, to know that you can trust someone with what you have given them. Verse 11 is simply this. If a Christian can be trustworthy with their money and possessions, then they can, hear this, then they can be entrusted with the true riches, the kingdom's spiritual riches. Isn't that interesting? In other words, if we're not faithful and careful and alert, shrewd, as it were, and wise with the earthly, what makes us think that we'll be entrusted with the eternal and the spiritual giftings that God has for us? And what are those spiritual treasures? It's the idea of our giftings, the ideas of privileges, benefits, authority, and even our very ministry. Verse 12 is the idea of mammon. And that is an Aramaic word. But it's also the idea for riches and money, but it's also akin to a Hebrew word signifying to be firm, steadfast. In fact, it's where we get the word amen. In other words, firm, set, amen. Now, that which is to be trusted, the idea is this. Who or what do we put our trust in God or mammon Jesus also adds the idea that if you can't be trustworthy with other men's stuff or even God's things what makes us think that we will truly get the riches that are ours so he says this give what is your own refers to eternal treasure that truly belongs to you. In other words, if we handle the money and wealth wisely, you will get what's yours, or literally you'll get what's coming to you. But you know what's coming to us? Paul put it this way. I love it. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what lies ahead for us. Our riches, what lies ahead for you and I, is indescribable in our language, in our vocabulary. That's what is yours. So God is paying close attention in Jesus, establishing that principle with this parable. That is what Jesus is saying here. So be alert with the temporary. Use it wisely. Advance the kingdom of God. Understand it's given to you by God to begin with. You're only a manager. You are not the owner. And guess what? I've got far infinitely greater than what you could ever imagine ahead for you. Glory! That's exciting, isn't it? Well, James also said this, a treasure where moth and rust, or could I insert the economy, does not rust. 
glory. Okay, verse 13, third application, last of all. And everybody said, amen. Can I get another amen? Well, let's do it with a little liturgical emphasis. Amen. Again, amen. Okay, Brother Ingo, have you gone nuts? Yes. For Jesus. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one, hate the one, and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The application, the third application here in verse 13 is undivided loyalty. The folly of double-mindedness. Serve here denotes the idea of being enslaved. It is exclusive loyalty to be completely at one's disposal. Jesus made it very clear that the service he demands is one of complete surrender. The emphasis here is not on the qualities themselves, but the folly and impossibility of serving two masters. The disciple is not necessarily to hate the world, but is to avoid the material magic and the love and serve God above all else. Servanthood in that day was a common practice. In slavery, the individual had absolutely no rights. The master had complete control over his servant. Man or woman mattered not. So here Jesus is claiming that just as in that day, we cannot serve two masters. Not only is it foolish, it is impossible. We must make a choice. Thus far, the contrast is exclusive. Either treasure on earth or treasures in heaven. Make your choice. It's interesting. Verse 14 starts out with, the Pharisees loved money. They had made their choice. And it certainly wasn't God. So here, two masters. It is plain and simple. It's between God and mammon. When I say mammon, let me say just beyond the idea of money. I like to think of it as materialism. Materialism are all the externals. It has to do with the draw and the attraction of the world. That which pulls us away from true, single-hearted devotion to God. Listen, uh, the word anxious in Scripture, when Paul said in Philippians 4, do not have one single distracting care or be anxious about nothing. Anxious there is the idea, the word that has to do with divide. To be anxious is to be divided. And may I say we're living in a day right now in America that our attention can really be divided with what's swirling around us, couldn't it? But even during these times, hear this, God demands un divided attention. Well, we're looking around, and certainly we need to be wise. I appreciate the pastor's words about not being foolish. 
You know, faith doesn't mean being foolish. You know, you know, still be wise even in these days. But don't become so distracted and divided that we're giving more attention here than we are here. God is saying, look at me. The song said it best. Oh, look at me. Amen. So the idea here is don't be divided. Therefore, anyone who divides their allegiance between God and materialism, hear me. You've already given your loyalty to mammon. Hear this again. If your allegiance has, is divided between mammon and God, you've already given your allegiance to mammon because God can only be de, de, served with the idea with complete and exclusive devotion. So within each of us even today, there are two forces struggling to become our masters. May I throw in another one here? Fear, for some right now, is attempting to control even believers. We grapple with these forces every day. The good news is, we don't have to. We just read the Scriptures. We are under the shelter of His wings. Amen? And there is rest. There is peace. There is safety. Hear me. The government is not our refuge. We're praying for them, and rightfully so, that God give them nothing. I was thrilled the other day when I saw that picture of President Trump announcing the National Day of Prayer, and surrounding him were ministers, and there were some who had their hands on his shoulder. They were praying for him at that moment, and President Trump, his head was bowed while they were praying for him. I thought, you know what? God inclines his ears to the prayers of his people. Amen. So be at peace. Glory. So we don't have to struggle. And I close with this. St. Augustine said, Man is restless until he finds his rest in thee, O God. Are we at rest this morning? God wants us to be. And that comes through wholehearted devotion.